I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land that I record these episodes on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. The interviews contained in this episode were recorded on Turabel and Jagara country. Along with my co-hosts, Michael Wilson and Rosie Ween, we pay our respects to Turabel and Jagara elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Listeners, Yesterday, we aired the first in this three-part series, which builds upon our Water for Development collaboration with the Australian Water Partnership, which aired last year. This series was recorded at the Oswater Conference in mid-May. As always, our splendid Water Series hosts are Michael Wilson and Rosie Ween. Michael is Group Chief Executive at eWater Limited. Rosie is CEO of WaterAid Australia. You can access more information on the Australian Water Partnership in the show notes. Today, we start our story with Beata Sohatska. Beata is a PhD researcher specialising in the social aspects of urban water management and water-sensitive design at the University of Queensland and the Australian Centre for Water and Environmental Technology. Here's Beata talking about her water journey. I guess my, my water story, my water journey is a little bit unconventional. So I, my background is actually uh, my, the first time I started studying, I, uh, my first studies was uh, sociology and philosophy, which I uh, studied uh, in parallel. And I focused on, uh, on history of ideas and particular development and, and progress. How do we understand it? How do we want to uh, measure it? And how do we know that we are um, achieving those social benefits, those societal goals that are important to everyone? Sustainable development is the closest to my definition definition of uh, societal goals worth uh, pursuing. And I worked for a, for a couple of uh, organizations that specialized in sustainable development and sustainability in the urban context. And that's where I discovered uh, urban water management and how important it is uh, for urban planning and more generally for urban livability. So that brought me to Australia. I I did my master's in integrated water management at the University of Queensland, and then I decided uh, to pursue PhD, um, focusing on the relationship between water and urban water management and livability. And so in, in a lot of, um, I guess, urban planning context, particularly in uh, developing countries, which is a, a bit of a focus of, of this mm-hmm. podcast series, you're hardly ever dealing with a blank sheet of paper on which to then plan mm. the perfect uh, approach to um, urban amenity, livability, and and uh, water and wastewater. So, what are some of the lessons from your research about how to find opportunities? with an existing canvas, an existing set of realities, some of which work quite clearly against the sorts of things that you've been talking about. Where do we find the opportunities to introduce these concepts and take practical steps to to invest in in greater livability? So uh, given my 
within my research. I actually done uh, part of uh, of my um, part of my research project actually focuses on a precinct in South Australia as a case study, and this is a precinct that already has been developed. And in my in my uh, study, I'm trying to apply some very simple uh, indicators of water related livability or would be better said, livability benefits that can be generated by urban water management. And in order to pinpoint uh, the opportunities for improving that livability, I explore uh, different scenarios, basically. And the fact that I use the term livability allows me to look at a range of different urban spaces and water infrastructure. Uh, how they contribute uh, to urban livability individually, but also then how their like combination, what kind of what kind of uh, total aggregate benefit that the, does the combination of this urban space and these uh, elements of water infrastructure can generate. So I think thinking of it as livability allows you to look like at the whole picture. And I strongly believe, and this is, I think, one of the messages from my, from my uh, research, not particularly um, surprising, not that I'm the first one to notice it, but um, perhaps it's not always articulated that uh, livability, when you, when you start talking about livability, is basically a question of uh, trade-offs and priorities. There are no, uh, there is no one who actually is principally opposed to the idea of urban livability. The reason why we don't get enough urban livability, be it generated by urban planning more generally or urban water management, is that there are competing priorities, that uh, there is a competition for land or for resources such as water, and that the livability itself gets uh, defined by the priority attributes in a given context. So for example, um, why we don't get more uh, irrigated parks? Uh, well, perhaps because we need that space for something else, but there is another, another priority. So in my research, I'm trying to explore those different scenarios which have constraints built in them because it's already like, uh, uh, there's already some development there in the basic infrastructure in order to be able to realistically say, where could we tweak the, 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 the or, or in other words, the designs uh, that I test, which were developed uh, in, uh, by architects in another project, how much of this uh, livability benefits do they generate in terms of um, specific parameters of urban environment? We, we've heard, you know, from Navarra, for example, um, from Papua New Guinea on some of those urban uh, discussions that need to happen and the complexity of who you need around the table. When you think about conversations about those trade-offs, who's sitting around the table? Oh, it's a very, very uh, complex, um, um, I would say, um, it's a very big table. And uh, that is why I think... Uh, that is why I think it's important to both talk about how we define livability and uh, clarify the, pro the, 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 the concept itself and talk about how we can measure it because this gives uh, residents in particular, uh, but also policymakers, uh, tools to negotiate perhaps those uh, trade-offs or uh, talk about them. So 
in in my experience working in uh, in international development, the the questions of urban design and urban renewal and water sensitive design mm. often come up either in the wake of a natural disaster, which has wiped out the existing infrastructure, unfortunately, in a in a in a large urban area or a or a large city, or there is some large investment mm. in redesigning, you know, the, a section of the of the city or a particular uh, area of in infrastructure. But those opportunities don't come up every day, and and one would hope that uh, that urban design is more res resilient and resistant to natural disasters in future if if the principles of build back better are followed through. But how do you make part of the ongoing everyday conversation um, in in the absence of a dramatic a dramatic event or a dramatic investment opportunity, do you make opportunities for urban renewal, water sensitive urban design? part of an everyday conversation where even small investments can make a difference. Yeah, yeah. and I think that in the end, it is often said that, you know, like when you talk about livability, you have to think about livability for whom. Uh, and we have different preferences uh, in terms of how, in terms of our lifestyle choices as well. Like what, what do we want uh, really when we talk about uh, livability? However, it's also good to have some quantitative uh, kind of in indicators of uh, objective parameters of the urban environment. So, Beata, as you think about water for development and think particularly around this question of urban and livability of cities, what gives you the most hope? What gives you hope as we think about, you know, there are so many challenges that we face. We also need to focus on where there's momentum and hope yes, for change. Yes, yes, yes. And, um, well, there are various, like I would say, signals or signs mm -hmm. um, that, uh, that give you hope. First of all, is that livability is becoming increasingly uh, popular concept to, look, uh, to use in the context of urban water management specifically, but also more generally when we talk about uh, resource management or just uh, urban sustainability, that this comes also as a question. And uh, what I also have discovered through my research is that that change in water paradigm, when I talk, for example, the introduction of integrated uh, water management and the concept of water sensitive cities and the concept of sponge cities and the concept of water wise cities, all of these emerging uh, concepts that try to look at uh, urban water management more uh, holistically consider uh, its various impacts on the environment and on the society um, are becoming, you know, more commonly used, and therefore that that change of language and the change in policies and the change in in urban water management, how it is done, basically, that gives a lot of hope for questions uh, uh, related uh, to livability. It's great to hear Beata's insights on livability and making gradual improvements to existing urban landscapes for the better. It's food for thought, right? Now to Dr. Beck Christensen. Beck is the Program Director at the Peter Cullen Water and Environment Trust. 
Here's Beck talking about her water journey. And as a quick aside, listening to all these water journeys compelled me to write my own. It was a fun, creative exercise in reflecting on my own upbringing and my work in the water sector, which is mostly through Goodwill Hunters. But for me, I also reflected on growing up next to the ocean, experiencing the millennium drought and strict water restrictions as a child, and appreciating early the finite and essential nature of water. I wrote pages and pages in the end. I would suggest you give it a go. Okay, over to Beck. My water journey started actually with my first job after finishing my PhD. Um, I have very much a background in sort of terrestrial ecology, so perhaps the drier side of the environment. Uh, But the first job that I got when I decided I was going to leave academia was in state government in policy for uh, the environment department in South Australia, which in that time included water. Uh, And I very quickly became involved in various water policy issues and learnt a lot very quickly. Yeah. Amazing. So, Beck, um, your work in the Peter Cullen Trust as as program director, um, really, what are you trying to add to the national and the international conversation about building water skills and making water issues more important and more understood by the general population and by politicians and decision makers? Mm. The way we work in the Peter Cullen Trust is really to connect with the people and organisations in the sector, to connect them with each other and to support them to do what they do better. They're already doing wonderful work um, and we really see ourselves as a catalyst to help them take it to the next level. Uh, And in doing that, also helping to connect our water sector with the wider community. Uh, We work quite closely with uh, sort of emerging or middle leaders in the field. uh, And we invest in those people to help them discover their full potential and really live up to it. Our sector is full of amazing people and we don't really need to necessarily teach them anything. We need to help them tap into the power that they already have Uh, and that's what we do through the programs that we have. Uh, We've been doing that for 10 years now so it's wonderful to see, you know, we now have a national community of alumni from our programs that's over 200 people. They work at all levels and faces of our sector. Um, They're an incredibly diverse group and what I guess our investment is, is just helping them do their jobs even better. Um, And in that way, kind of keeping Peter Cullen's legacy alive of really making a difference through people. Mm. So you've worked across academia. So as you said, you're an ecologist and an evolutionary biologist, um, also in government and and in the non-government sector. Where do you see where do you see the most deafness, if you like? Where, where are the biggest barriers in, uh, in, in trying to pursue these, these objectives that you've just talked about? Yeah, that's such a good question. <laughs> um, I think in Australia, probably two elements to that question. Um, one is that we're a very lucky country and most citizens, but not all citizens, most citizens of this country never have to think about or question where their water comes from. Uh, And so the issue is often not an issue for them because 
their daily lives function really well and they have water and they never have to think about it. And so um, actually elevating water to be an issue can be quite hard in that regard. Um, and probably the other thing I, I see as a barrier are really just the institutional structures and boundaries and all of those things that we create that in some ways are necessary for the functioning of, you know, our, our public systems, um, but also can make it very hard to be creative or to make change. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's one of the key things that came through in our discussions in the podcast were those silos and, and breaking down um, the silos. What are some of the themes that you're hearing at Oswater coming through around some of the things that we need to be getting ready for or thinking about as we look ahead? Mm. One of the things that's really stood out to me over the last 24 hours is how we can elevate uh, Indigenous knowledge and the Indigenous voice in our water conversations. We were so lucky to have that opening keynote um, from Dr Miriam Rose really talking about slowing down and listening and connecting. And in the session that the Peter Cullen Trust hosted yesterday afternoon, we were also lucky enough to have Associate Professor Brad Mogridge involved. So Brad's a fellow of the Trust and quite well known in the water sector um, for his, his leadership as a hydrogeologist, but also um, as a proud Camilleroy man. And one of the things that, um, that I guess we spoke about in our session was how there is such a deep technical expertise in the Indigenous people of our country um, tens of thousands of years of knowledge about this place that we probably haven't listened to fully or, and you know, as a result, haven't taken full advantage of in terms of our water and environmental management. And um, that's really something that I think we could, yeah, do a lot more about. Yeah, indeed. I've, I've seen through my work, and I know Rosie has too in her work in WaterAid, uh, both an international and an Australian domestic crisis emerging in the next generation of water leaders coming through. Um, it seems to be a, a challenge worldwide. And I know you're thinking very deeply about this at the Peter Cullen Trust uh, on both the domestic and the international sides but why do you think that is why why are why are young women not seeing great prospects in um, the manifold challenges that that water management uh, faces any population with mm. I think uh, I mean speaking from an Australian context and recognizing as well that our our water sector is very closely linked with our STEM sector. Um, you know, we know that gender equity is still quite an issue in that broader perspective. Um, and a lot of the, the technical fields um, that our people come through, uh, there's still a lot of barriers for women. Uh, even just the fact that it's, you know, a very skewed um proportion of genders, uh, which can make it quite hard to sort of see yourself in the sector and see yourself moving forward. One of the things that I think counters that argument um, is the program that we partner with the Water Services Association of Australia to run their young utility leaders. Um, 
very select group. Only five people make it into that program each year. Our current group has three outstanding uh, young women who are already leaders. Uh, again, they participated in our session yesterday and just absolutely knocked it out of the park and were clearly, clearly equal to some of the more senior um, and certainly, you know, any men that were in the room in what they brought and how they engaged with the group. So I think we've got some amazing prospects there as well, um, but definitely some systemic barriers to deal with. It's really interesting conversation with Lucia Cade last night. She was reflecting on, you know, for girls, there's a lot of evidence that shows they do need to see those role models and how can we have more high-profile women engineers uh, showing the opportunities to girls as they're choosing their subjects at school and university. It's be great to keep exploring that together. Indeed. And I think also uh, with that, broadening the idea of what what science and engineering looks like. Still, a lot of our uh, a lot of our kids think that science is people in lab coats with test tubes and it's a whole lot more it is that but it's a whole lot more than that as well um and that engineering is an incredibly exciting way to solve a whole range of problems it's it's not necessarily only a structural you know building bridges or things like that there's so many things you can do with engineering to make a difference and so i think broadening those stories that we present for our kids as well Absolutely. And and what about specific skill sets which allow people with those technical skills, the, the understanding of the things that need to come together to make a service quality, reliable and lasting, um, the conversations they need to have to convince policymakers to allocate resources, to speak about these priorities to their own constituencies and communities. What part of, of that um, connection do you think should be formally taught or, or, or part, of, um, part of dedicated training rather than just something good people pick up? Mm. I think there's definitely an element of communication training that we can do more of. And I think it's also important to recognise that the people who are best at this got that way because they just got in and did it and learnt from experience and making mistakes. One of the things that I have observed is that often when we come to communication, we're more focused on our side of the interaction than the other side of the interaction. Um, and one of the most effective things you can do to have good communication is actually to focus on who your audience is and what they, what they need and the way they need it. Uh, so you may, you may have an incredible, you know, depth or breadth of knowledge about a particular thing that you really, really want to share because you're really excited about it and that's wonderful. But often the audiences that we're working with don't need that full depth or breadth. They need brevity or clarity or confidence. Um, and so really thinking about who your audience is and what matters to them is, I think, one of the simplest and, and most important steps to communicating well. And as you're thinking about the water for development crisis, what is it that you think the challenge that we need to be really aware of, but also what gives you hope as you look to the future? Mm -hmm. I think my answer to both of those questions is the same and it's people. And perhaps I think that because I work with people. Uh, I think we still have real challenges around 
understanding the needs of everyone in our community and including the voices of everyone in our community. And until we do that, I don't think we can really achieve any kind of equitable or sustainable um, management of our resources. And that's at a, at a local, a national and a, a global level. And at the same time, I have so much hope from the people across our sector that I get to work with. They so deeply care about making a difference and are so committed to spending their lives doing this work to make the world a better place, if, even if that sounds a bit cheesy. Um, and so that, that gives me hope every day, knowing that I'm not alone here and that we're all here to make a difference. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Beck. Thanks. It's interesting how every speaker has spoken about the need to collapse silos and to deepen integration and systems thinking. What does this mean practically, though? I think it means understanding all of the different drivers and enablers that impact upon your work in any area of development, but especially water, and considering how they each interact with one another. I want to take you now to Kate Maddy and Lisa Hocking. Kate is Engagement Lead, Melbourne Metropolitan Urban Water and Systems Strategy, and Lisa is Policy and Program Manager at the Gunakonai Land and Waters Aboriginal Corporation. We're with Kate Maddie and Lisa Hocking, who've just done a really interesting session at the conference, um, but I'm going to start by asking both of you, uh, what's your personal water story? How did you get into this and how did you how did you get into working together yep i can go first um so i'll take the first part of the question the personal journey for me i grew up on a farm in regional new south wales uh, i have a full appreciation of what water means both from a, an environmental perspective our, our farm has been in our family for a number of generations and so there's a lot of care in the farm and the water courses that run through it. And so it's always been something that has mattered a lot to me, I think just because of how I grew up and I had a very full appreciation of what droughts meant both for wildlife and for economic, So and also just seeing in real life the impact of dry conditions on the beautiful river red gums that are where I grew up. So if, I guess it's from that foundation that I was always interested in working in water and I love working in an I guess an essential service it feels like you're doing something really valuable for the community and I care a lot about the environment and so you can contribute to the environment in this space and in terms of how Lisa and I came to working together um, the piece of work that I'm working on at the moment is the uh, Greater Melbourne Urban Water and System Strategy, and that's a 50-year strategy looking at urban water supply for the Greater Melbourne region. And it's one of the key pieces in that is the balance around community values and needs. And so the piece that Lisa and I have been working on is how we um, work together as water corporations with traditional owner groups in incorporating traditional owner objectives and values and needs into our water planning. 
I guess. If I'm looking at my personal water story, um, I think most people who enjoy um, well, life, you know, enjoy the environment, enjoy life. If they think right back to when they were little tackers, there's water there somewhere mm-hmm. because let's face it, without water, you don't get very far. Um, so I have memories of, you know, fishing in the Wimmera River um, where, where my dad came from on um, Beringigadjan country. Um, I have memories of swimming in urban creeks because I thought that was okay. Nobody told me that they were infested with water quality issues. I just thought there's a waterway and it's quite deep. I might have a little swim. Um, swimming, you know, in the lakes around the Grampians, um, going to wetlands and getting bitten by mozzies. Uh, So as a kid, water was always there. Um, I guess from the perspective of why I'm sitting here is I don't think we can keep managing um, our water the way that we have been managing our water. I really believe that um, um, Australia's First Peoples have got a lot that they can teach us, but I also think there's a water justice issue there. And it needs to be um, it needs to be redressed. So I'm doing my little tiny piece to hope you know hopefully move that forward a bit. Yeah. So Lisa, you're you're now policy and program manager at the Gunnakurnai Land and Waters Aboriginal Corporation. Um, and Kate's explained um, why uh, in in her role with the Greater Melbourne Urban Water and Systems Strategy, um, you're now working together. But it sounds like it's a pretty new way of working. So what have been some of the um, barriers, but also the innovations that you think you've, you've discovered in working together in this, this new and different way? Sure. So I guess um, Kate won't mind me saying this. Water corporations have been pretty slow to come to the picture in terms of working with traditional owners. And in Victoria, I think we're probably experiencing a better Um, experience than in other states around Australia but it's still pretty slow Um, but the government released in 2016 Water for Victoria which had an Aboriginal water policy and at that point in time there's also a change to the um, Water Corp statement of obligations and what terms that they had to do and what they have to do is engage with traditional owners. Um, Understanding what engagement means it's been a pretty rough journey for some Water Corps Um, And I guess from the um, perspective of, you know, Kate and I working together, um, Kate experienced a little bit of that hiccup um, when, like, land for traditional owners and waters is country. It's not disconnected. But what um, the Melbourne Water Corporations do is take some of the Gunnokunai water from the country artificially and move it across to, you know, give water, drinking water and, and what have you to customers. So... Um, the Water Corps, and it wasn't Kate, but the Water Corporations had a little bit of a oops moment. They're in the midst of engaging with who they felt they should be engaging with, then realised, oh, it's going to can I water. 60% of it, I might add, not a small bit. Perhaps we should have a little chat and we'll ask the Gunai Kurnai people what their cultural values for water are, at which point we said, no, that's not how we do business with Water Corps. We actually want to look for mutually um, beneficial outcomes here. So then in order to do that, we reset the program and said, how are we going to do this? How are we going to work together to make it meaningful for both the Water Corps and also the um, traditional owners that I represent in this particular instance? Yeah. And I think, you know, that piece around who is sitting around the table and making decisions is so key no matter where we're working in the world around water. What do you see um, that we can take from the experience in Australia and share globally 
around decision making, but also there's different values of water um, from different perspectives. So, um, I don't know if you heard Auntie Miriam Rose. Yes, the opening address. Please tell us again. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> so, listening is number one. Not presuming. Listening. Um, she told such a beautiful story, but it's so applicable in so many different settings. If you just listen, mm. then you can actually figure out what's the best thing. So you listen and then you talk, you yarn about things. What's the best way forward? Don't presume, here's my strategy, this is the way I must go, I will do this. Um, for for, um, for Glarwack, who I work for, don't presume, oh, it sounds, you know, water thing for Melbourne, it doesn't sound like it's got anything there for us. Don't presume, have the conversation first and expand and look and say, what are the opportunities? What can you do? What can we do? What can we do differently that hasn't been done? Is it an hour or is it in five years or is it in ten? Push those, push those um, boundaries out a little bit. And if I can add to that, um, I think the other key piece is those conversations need to be transparent and there needs to, you need to come with them with a view of that sort of we're looking for mutual and aligned benefits and, and objectives that we can work together on and how do we work together and being flexible and it's just about working together in a way that you can establish a, a, an approach that works for, for both and that requires flexibility and it requires time and it requires trust and, you know, when you mention trust, obviously that takes time to build and so that's really important. And I think, you know, as Lisa mentioned, once we sort of hit that reset process and worked through an approach together, for me personally, it's been incredibly rewarding and I feel like we're, we're on a path where we can actually deliver some tangible outcomes and broader benefit as a, to the community as a result as well. So it's a pretty exciting space. We're really looking forward to actually moving through to implementation. So the broader benefit, Kate, that you you mentioned, the broader benefit to the whole community, what has this dialogue and this understanding about needs and culture and ways of communicating and making decisions, do you think benefits the, the broader practice of water management that's the responsibility of your corporation? Yeah, I th there's probably a few things to that. And I think one of the things is for us to have a broader understanding of traditional owners' connection to country and to water. I think that, that's a foundational piece that if people, you know, have a good understanding of that and then understanding that the working in connection with the environment is... Um, I think that's something that delivers benefit for everyone. We're facing into climate change. We're facing into, you know, water shortages as, as a result. So anything that's working with that principle of working in harmony with the environment, I, it has to benefit all. And I might let Lisa talk to benefits for community and Aboriginal Australians as well. Yeah, so um, from so cultural values for traditional owners um, is very broad. Um, you know, so place, spirituality, historical connection, um, customary, uh, future use, which is economic. It's a very, very broad um, phrase. Um, so understanding the full breadth of that is, um, I guess, what leads to a different type of management approach. I think there's been a little bit of a... Um, uh, 
predilection from government's delivery partners to presume that cultural values means the critters and what have you. It's so aligned, they see as just environmental values, but it's not something quite different to that. If you apply the, um, the sort of broad-reaching um, objectives for the Gunakuna people, healthy mob, healthy country, um, sovereignty and self-determination to water management, and then you apply that to an assessment process of how and when you make decisions, then the broader community benefits from that. Because if you get those things, then everyone benefits. You know, I don't think, I might be wrong, there probably is one person, but I don't think there'd be many people that say, oh, I don't really want a healthy river, I don't care. <laughs> Most people actually, whether they realise it or not, do. I don't think there's many people, or might be one, who say, says, I don't need drinking water. There might be one, but, you know, they're not going to last for very long. <laughs> no, it's right. <laughs> so if you get those sort of pillars right and you enable that, remembering that we are talking about a minority voice, so there is differences there in the developing world. I don't know if you use that phrase anymore, but the developing world um, where sometimes the voices are um, um, not minority voices, they're just underrepresented voices. So there is a bit of a difference there. This is what we're talking about is um, reinvigorating what has become a minority voice because of unsettlement mm. and giving it a stronger voice and then giving it the voice mm. to really have the seat at the table. Now, if you can apply that, you can actually apply that um, principle mm. to populations where that's not the minority but it's the underrepresented, it's yeah. the seat at the table. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think to pick up on that point that Lisa just made, that's one of the key things that we've been working to is trying to embed those voices and those perspectives in how we make decisions and how we move forward together as well. One of the things that our listeners have really valued is hearing um, from our guests what keeps you awake at night and what gives you hope. So I think from a water resources perspective or, you know, just in terms of the needs and values within water for Australia, we are in a drying climate. We have a growing population and it's, continue, it's going to continue to put strain on these natural systems and being able to provide, you know, what is an essential service as well. And to be thinking about how we do this while we, you know, take this, support this restorative justice approach with um, traditional owners as well, which is absolutely important. And it's just how do we find our way through in a sustainable manner? So I guess what gives me hope, um, one of our elders um, says, don't be too greedy, don't be greedy, just take what you want. If we could move to that, don't be greedy, just take what you need, don't, don't be greedy, then you can start to say, well, we've got limited resources, do you really need to create this cup, which takes part of it? Probably not, because you can use a glass. All those little things, that gives me hope that if you stop, we stop being so um, here and now, mm. we actually can live within the resources we've got but we do have to change our behaviours. I think one of the pieces of things that gives me hope is that moving forward, I can see that, you know, traditional owner voices are going to be stronger and there is a real principle around living in harmony with, with country and, and that to me can 
only be a good thing for you know really valuing the environment we live in and all in our communities. Okay, that's the second in our three-part series. Do you feel like you've attended the conference? I really hope so. Tomorrow we'll air our final instalment with two exceptional speakers. I'll see you then.